started. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the morning that you've given us and the promise um, that there are new mercies that await us in the day that you've given. We pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, Lord, we pray that we would value the time that we have together as men in your word, um, that we would be attentive, oh God, and that we would be re- receptive um, to John's vision. We pray, God, that you would make us courageous men, that you would make us the men that you've intended us to be, and that this would be a part of that. This would be a means of your grace for our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, a few years ago, uh, I think, you know, right around the time that, that the Dallas Zoo opened the African exhibit, we were there um, uh, visiting the zoo as a family. Probably had three kids at that point, I always forget. Um, and kids were young, and uh, we had made our way to the lion exhibit. So the lion exhibit is one of my favorite exhibits at the zoo because of the way that it's set up. If you don't know, the lion exhibit has uh, these big glass panes that are set in these alcoves. And the alcove extends both to our side of the glass and to the lion's side. And so the way it's always worked for us is we almost always go and find that there's a lion sitting in the alcove. So you can stand inches away from this, this I mean, a lion, like a live lion. And I know at the zoo that that loses some of its luster, but just step back and think about that for a moment, that this is a creature that is terrorized. You know, uh, people living in the African savanna for generations upon generations, that they can, they can never dream about standing close to something like a lion casually. And here we are sort of eating our popcorn and eating an ice cream cone and kids with the goldfish, you know, trying to pet the lion. And, um, you know, it, it is what it is. And so um, it's cool to see the thing up close. And so this particular occasion, Charlie, my second son, who was, I think, around two years old at the time, we were standing back with our youngest, Carter, who was probably in a, you know, a, um, a stroller. He went up, and he had goldfish in his hand, and he had a juice box. And he goes up to the big kitty cat. And the big kitty cat is, is laying in the alcove, and, the al- and he's, you know, he's, he's sleeping. He's paying no attention to, to us. You know? And um, at this, in this uh, occasion, though, he actually opened one of his eyes. Eyelid came up and he noticed Charlie and he just sort of, Charlie just went up there and he went back to sleep. So Charlie has got his juice box, he smiles at the lion, he offers him some of his juice box, which I thought was a nice gesture. And then he's play petting the lion uh, through the glass. And all of a sudden, it, it, I you know, can't even describe how, how quick and how fast it was. The lion, he, he takes out his paw with his claw and he claws the glass. Um, unbelievably quick, unbelievably terrifying, so that Charlie has peed on himself. <laughs> and I'm not that far behind, I'll be honest with you. So, so we actually had to go, he runs to us, we had to go sit down, and our hearts were pounding just in, incredibly quick. We had to move on, you know, and we still talk about that story to this day. And, and for me, even at the time, it was a little bit strange, because rationally, the glass is there, it's still intact, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing scary, there's nothing threatening in terms of real threat. And yet there's something that was aroused in us, that the lion swipe aroused in us, that was primal, very primal. All of a sudden that we had been awakened to the danger that was completely disconnected from us only moments before. Right? Uh, Awakened to the reality that we were actually standing inches away from a lion. And it's amazing how we can become dull to things like that, eating our popcorn, our goldfish, our juice boxes, when the reality is, here's a majestic, dangerous creature that for generations upon generations has terrified people seeing it in the wild. Now listen, I'll tell you that story because I know that no one here would question theologically, if you, that is if you believe in God, 
No one would question theologically that God is far more powerful and perilous than a lion is behind a thick pane of glass at a zoo. It's a silly comparison in many ways. But I think the comparison does pose for us an interesting question. In your life, are you awake to the reality that you are living in the presence of God? Are you awake to the reality that God is near, that you are living in His presence? Does His power, His majesty, His sovereignty, His nearness, does it ever make your heart race? Does it ever make your pulse quicken? Does it ever sort of make your feet swift? Does it make your mind focus? Does it make your adrenaline pump? Because what I'd like to suggest to you this morning is that in, in chapter 6, and this particular part of John's vision, this is exactly the purpose that John wants to affect in us. Chapter 6, at least chapter 6, is John's version of a lion's paw taking a swipe at us, not to hurt us, but to rouse us, to wake us up to the active presence of God in our lives and in our world. You've probably heard this quote before. Finley Peter Dunn, who was an American journalist in the, in the latter half of the 20th century, he said, look, the, the purpose of journalism, the purpose of the newspaper is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Now, I'm not sure how you feel the news cycle is doing in that, in the, sort of that, 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 uh, that purpose these days, but we can say um, uh, clearly that this is exactly what John wants to do for us this morning. He wants to, to afflict us out of our complacency, to afflict the comfortable, to afflict those who are sitting there forgetting the terror and the reality of living in the presence of God, and at the same time to comfort and even more to give courage to those who are living under great affliction. I'm going to read this morning almost the entire passage that you have before you, except I'm going to skip just this part, the census part in chapter 8. You may be looking at the passage, and you're probably looking at it right now. It's a long passage, and maybe you're thinking, why can't you just summarize? I, look, I would rather condense my own comments than to have you miss this. Let's get the details together, and, and again, I, I want you to let the words wash over you. Try to picture, try to visualize, try to see the passage, the vision, alongside John as he sees it. Do your best to do so. I know it's early. Let's read together the Word of God, starting in chapter 6 and moving through 8, verse 4. John writes, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. He was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. Its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. 
When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little longer till the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for, great, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. They were holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given the power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12 from the tribe of Reuben, and so on and so forth. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne in the smoke of the incense. With the prayers of the saints, they rose before God from the hand of the angel. Amen. This is God's word to us. 
Well, if you haven't gathered yet, I need to come clean and tell you how I think we should be reading the book of Revelation. Um, because there are different ways to read it, certainly. And I want to respect those who read it differently. Um, but this is how Paul and I are going to teach it on Tuesday mornings. We do not think that John's vision is meant as um, a vision that should be taken for one-to-one correspondence on a timeline. Okay? In other words, we don't think that each image, whether it be a seal or um, a plague or a trumpet, corresponds to only one major world event. You're about, I don't think we're playing match. Match the event here. Okay? Now, I want you to hear me. We certainly believe that this is a predictive book. Without a doubt, Jesus says as much in chapter 1. But we believe that the vision is meant to predict ongoing patterns. Ongoing patterns of the church's experience from the time when Jesus rose from the grave and ascended into heaven to the right hand of God the Father until Jesus returns again to judge the living and the dead. So right now, that means right now. So right now, this vision, the the vision that we're reading about is, we believe, is unfolding in our world as it has been for two millennia, okay? I think think you'll see what I mean as we move along. So just a little recap from last week. Uh, Last week, uh, we read about a scroll, right, that had seven seals. What is the scroll? What is the scroll? The scroll is... Uh, the providential and mysterious and glorious plan and purposes of our sovereign God. The scroll is, in fact, the will of God. If you remember last week, there was only one who was found in heaven and earth that was worthy to open the scroll, to open the seals of the scroll. Who was it? It was Jesus, right? Jesus Christ. One person who was worthy. But that one person, if you remember, was identified by two different descriptions, okay? Do you remember what those two descriptions were in chapter 5? In verse 5 of chapter 5, John hears the proclamation that here is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse. He hears it. That's important. But when he turns to see in the next verse, he doesn't see a lion, does he? What does he see instead? He sees a lamb who was slain. It's really important. You have one person here, Two different descriptions. I want you to tuck that away for a moment, and we'll come back to it. A lion and a lamb, but the same person. So in chapter 6, Jesus now takes the scroll, and he begins with the scroll by undoing the seals in order. All right? And that's where we are this morning in chapter 6. Now, two questions for us as we sort of process the vision together. The first is this. What in this vision should wake us up? We feel sleepy this morning. It's Tuesday at 7 (laughs) o'clock. What should rouse us? What should stir us? What should disturb us out of our complacency? Number one. And then number two, what here should encourage us? What has God given us here this morning that should cheer us, that should make us courageous men in the face of great tribulation? What should rouse us? And what should encourage us? Take those in order. Number one, what should awaken us in the vision? Let's just consider the breaking of the seals for a moment, and let's walk through it. The first, a seal is broken, and one of the four living creatures who does the bidding of God commands and says, come. And a, white, a, a, a rider on a white horse comes. A white horse was the symbol, the ancient symbol, of victory and conquest. Okay? And it makes sense, because this, this rider is given a crown and a bow, and he's sent out to conquer. Right? What is the image here? 
This is the image of one people or one kingdom or one nation conquering another. It's the image of war. It's nation v. nation. Nation v. nation. Number two, the second seal. Again, a rider is summoned. This time the horse is bright red, the color of what? Color of blood, right? Color of blood. And this rider is given permission by the living creature to take peace from the earth. Now, most commentators don't think this is the same thing. This is not nation v. nation. This is interpersonal violence within a nation's borders, right? Um, it's, it's the image of national unrest. It is hatred. It is murder. It is, it is personal violence. The third seal. Once again, the rider is summoned. Here's a black horse with scales. And a voice says something that will be strange to us. He says, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts for barley, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. What does that mean? Well, denarius was equal to about a day's wages. If you worked all day, what you got in return was a denarius. Now, can you imagine if you had worked all day? All day. Labored all day, and all you could buy at the end of that was what? A quart of wheat or three quarts of barley. And look at the command here, don't harm the oil and the wine, because it was expensive. Don't, don't, and this was the, look, this was just house wine. This is two buck chuck from Trader Joe's, all right? You know, this is boxed wine here. Don't harm it, but it, it is so precious. Um, what is the image? The image is, is one of economic ruin. It's famine, it's market collapse, it's financial crises. This is the third seal. Fourth seal. Same thing happens. Maybe you've heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse before. Here's where we get them. The fourth is summoned. This rider comes on a pale horse. That is a sickly horse, a horse that is dying. And the rider, we learn, is death himself. And behind him is, is Hades. That's the Greek name for the realm of the dead. And Hades is, fo um, is following behind death on the pale horse to consume everything and everyone in death's wake. So the fourth seal is an intensification of the preceding seals, and it is the one thing that no one, wealthy, powerful, wise, no one avoids. It is death itself. So let's pause for a moment and just consider what we've read. What we have in chapter 6 is a passage about global suffering. And what forms does the suffering take? Uh, war? Violence, economic ruin, and death. Do you think that these things are still relevant for us today? Not just in our world. Do you think that these riders still roam the streets of Dallas, Texas today? Absolutely. Absolutely. Consider just for a moment in a political season, if you've heard any mention of these issues, national security, Domestic terrorism, urban violence, the state of the economy, anxiety over the markets, health care, issues of life. Have you heard any of that? I mean, I've, you've probably heard a lot of other things uh, in the debates, but maybe you've heard some issues too. These are the issues that are ongoing for us as not just a nation, but as a world. Why? Because John's vision is meant to describe suffering in a fallen world no matter the time and no matter the place. 
And it is somewhat alarming, is it not, with all the technological advances that we've had in the last 2,000 years, that we have still not found ways to eradicate the effects of these four writers. They are still with us. This is pattern brokenness and pattern suffering in our world. Now, that's disturbing enough. Here's the disturbing part. Where is God in all of this? In the passage, in the vision, where is God in the vision? What is he doing? He is sitting on the throne. He is ruling, and he is the one who, who uh, by command of the creatures, he is the one who has summoned these riders and the one who actually permits them to do their work. Now, I want to be clear. God is also the one who restrains him. You'll notice, for example, in one part that he restrains death to a fourth of the earth. That was, that's a clear uh, example of him saying, look, you can only have so much. But God himself, we, we, we can't miss the difficulty, I think, and the mysterious reality that suffering happens according to the decree and the sovereignty of God who is enthroned in heaven. Where is God in our suffering? God is ruling over it. He is always ruling over it. As hard as it is in our flesh to believe, God is actively in command over the writers. Now why in the world would a good and gracious and loving God allow such a thing? Why would God do that? I want to talk about that for a moment, really for the rest of our time this morning, because this is a question that we need to be able to answer um, as people giving a defense of our faith, commending our faith, but it's also a question, more importantly, that we need to be able to cling to in the face of our own suffering, in the face of the wake of the, uh, of the suffering that these writers leave behind in our own lives. Why does God allow suffering? Well, for one reason, God allows suffering because suffering is a manifestation of a world that is cursed. Suffering is a manifestation of a world that is cursed. So, you know, Old Testament, I mean, excuse me, Revelation is really an exercise in the imagination of the Old Testament. You'll see that a lot in the end. These four horsemen are also alluded to in other places, like in Zechariah, okay? But if you go back to Genesis 3 in the Old Testament, many of you know the story. Uh, The writer of Genesis says that God cursed the world in judgment. Not just sort of because he wanted to, because he wanted to inflict pain, but because of human rebellion and sin. And what that means is that we don't just live as sinners, but we live in a place that is fundamentally broken and under the curse of God's judgment. And men, God will not let us forget that. God himself will not let us forget the fact that we do not have the power to rise above the curse. That we don't have the power within ourselves to undo our sin and to atone for our rebellion. In fact, you see this specifically in the sixth seal. Notice the sixth seal. Sixth seal is like classic, I know this sounds weird to say, but classic apocalyptic imagery. Everything falls apart in the sixth seal. Like blood, moon turns, I mean, it's a horror film. Moon turns red, stars fall to the sky. What's happening is creation is coming undone at the seams. And the point in the sixth seal is how the sixth chapter ends. The point is to say, look, there is nowhere for anyone to hide. In fact, chapter six ends with this question. In all the suffering, in all the preparation for judgment, chapter six ends with the question, okay, who can stand? Who can stand? 
And one of the great purposes of suffering is to make that question palpable and personal for each one of us. In the face of judgment, in the face of brokenness and rebellion and suffering and death, O oh Lord, who can stand? And the answer, of course, is a rhetorical question as the mountains fall down and they're looking for places to hide under the rocks, right? The answer is not even I can stand in my wisdom and power and wealth. I cannot avoid the judgment of God for my rebellion. One of the major purposes of suffering, we don't need to lose this, is the fact that we live in a world that is cursed. And God is forbidding us to fall asleep on that reality by handing suffering to us. We need him. That's number one. There is, however, another purpose of suffering that is equally as clear in the vision, and it's the one that I hope you leave here with this morning, encouraged and comforted, even as you're aroused. Okay? So chapter 6 ends with the question. What was the question again? Let me hear it. Who can stand? That's, that's really important. That's how it ends. Who can stand? So that's another way of asking the question, who can conquer? And I know that all of you haven't been here every week, but if you go back and read chapter 3, which is the letter to the, the, the churches, the refrain that you're going to hear over and over and over to all the churches, that is to all of God's people, is um, uh, to the ones who, who conquer. You're going to hear the word conquering a lot. In fact, you could say that Revelation is, in reality, at base, a book about conquering. How does God conquer? How does the Lamb conquer? How do we conquer? This is a book about conquering, right? So, so the question at the end of 6 is, who can stand? That is, who can conquer? And chapter 7 is a response to that question. Now, stay with me. I want you to notice here, this is going to take a little bit of gymnastics, just for a moment, that John encounters two groups. I told you to tuck something away a second ago. He encounters two groups here. The first group is a group that John hears. He doesn't see it. Sound familiar? He hears the group. It's a strange picture because you think he'd be seeing this. And what he hears is, is a group that is being sealed with the seal of God. Do you see the play on seals here? The whole time, seals have represented something from God that you don't want. The seals are, 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 are terrifying. They're judgment. And now, all of a sudden, God's seal is protecting his people. And the seal, he hears the seals being put on the foreheads of, the, uh, of uh, basically, Israel. Right? And what are the numbers there associated with Israel? It's 12, which is a biblical number for fullness. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. What do you have in each tribe? You have 12,000 for 144,000. The numbers aren't important except to say this is everybody. In other words, when God finishes, no one's going to be missing. Everyone that's supposed to be there is going to be there. No one's going to get lost in the shuffle. 144,000 perfection. Everyone supposed to be there is there. Now listen to me. John hears this, and you'll see it in the passage. He hears it in the form of a census. He hears it in the form of a census. Do you know why? Why were censuses taken in the Old Testament? They were taken primarily for military purposes. A census was a display of strength. In other words, what John is hearing, he is hearing a picture of or an announcement of the strong ones, the militant ones, the conquering people of God from the 12 tribes of Israel. Here are the ones who can stand. And yet when John turns to look, what does he see instead? He sees a second group. He doesn't see what he hears. 
He sees a great multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation beyond number. They are clothed in white robes. This is not a military picture at all. These are the people who have been washed in the suffering of another, in the blood of the Lamb. And these are the ones that are coming out of great suffering, out of the great tribulation, John is told. These are also the ones who have conquered. Really, really important here, guys. Um, Is John talking about one group or two groups? Look, John is encountering here one group. The 144,000 and the multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation is the exact same group. How do we know this? Think back to chapter 5. I told you to hang on to it. In chapter 5, we get two descriptions of Jesus. Yet they are both the same person. And notice that John hears the conquering name of Jesus. Doesn't he? He hears it announced that here is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and yet when he turns to look around, he doesn't see a lion. He sees the suffering one, the Lamb of God who is slain. What is that vision telling us? It's telling us this, that the way that God intends to fulfill the promise to give his people a lion is to make his son into a lamb. That Jesus is the victorious one, but he is victorious in one way and one way only, and that is through suffering, not around it. In fact, Hebrews says something that's, that's, that's kind of amazing. Hebrews says that Jesus, the founder of our salvation, was made perfect, as if he wasn't already. He was made perfect through suffering. Now, what does that mean? It means that by becoming a lamb that was slain, Jesus is made into the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, back to chapter 7. Stay with me. <laughs> John hears the conquering description of the 144,000. He hears the census taken. He hears the ones who are ready to fight, who are sealed, who are courageous, who are the sons of the tribe of Israel, ready to be led out by the lion of the tribe of Judah. And yet he turns and sees the ones instead who have suffered. And they are not just Israel. They are from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's those who have shed tears, who have been slain, who have hungered and thirsted, who have endured suffering. And now they are dressed in white. And why does that matter? Because what John encounters is a people who have become like their Lord. What John sees and what he hears are people who are both the lion and the lamb, the people that are made to stand and to conquer and to gain courage and to fight, but to do all of that in one way and in one way only, and that is through suffering. Through being washed first in the suffering of Jesus, and then by being united with him in his suffering, That is the only way that God's people are made conquerors. I could summarize all of that from five to seven to everything in between by saying this, that men's suffering is what makes you into a lion by the grace of God. For those of you who have been sealed, for those of you who have trusted the lamb and who have bowed down to the lion, suffering is never, ever, ever evidence of cursing or judgment. Suffering now in your life, as hard as it is in our flesh to believe it and receive it, is the means of God making you into the man that he intends you to be at the end of time. And just for a moment, I I want you to consider what courage, what courage that should give us today as we make our way in a fallen world. Consider what radical courage that this reality should elicit in the church, in the people who are called the followers of Jesus Christ, 
Let me just leave you with this example. Rodney Stark, who was a sociologist of religion at Baylor, he points out that in the early church, he's answering the question in one of his books, why, why, how in the world did a small religious movement that was poor, that <laughs> was unimportant, how did it become the dominant religion by the fourth century of the empire? How did it grow so quickly? And Rodney Stark said, look, one of the ways that, that, that this happened is because there were two major, um, uh, uh, major plagues in the second and third centuries. But in the second century, in 165, you have a plague, and at this particular time, um, multitudes in the Roman Empire were being wiped out. Multitudes. Smallpox plague. And at a time when everyone was leaving the cities where the sickly and dying were, in the wake, in the wake of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, when everyone was leaving the cities, the Christians were staying. And not only were they staying in the midst of the suffering, but they were caring for ones who weren't just a part of their family. Not just a part of the church, they were caring for unbelievers and believers alike. In fact, if you go back, pagans write about this event with disgust because they're mad that Christians are gaining an audience in their culture because of their willingness not to run away from suffering, but to run towards it. Right? Um, Do you think these writers have visited our city? (laughs) Do you think they know their way around our neighborhoods? We ask this question all the time. What will it take for the gospel to gain credibility in our time and place. As one pastor says, it's, I assure you, it's not by just having people bask in the aura of our awesomeness, right? No, it will be by our willingness to share in the suffering of others. It will be by our willingness to move toward what the writers themselves have left behind in order to minister the love of Christ as he sanctifies us in the process. Why do we do it? Man, we believe in a God who makes lions out of slain lambs. That is his story. He makes lions out of lambs who have been slain through suffering, through his love and grace given to us by uniting us with the Son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We pray that... Um, that it would rouse us, that it would comfort us, it would make us courageous. We pray that you would give us direction according to your Son. Um, Make us good conversation partners and listeners now as we love each other at our tables. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Before you go to your tables, real quickly, I need to apologize. um, The the, the passage was so big, and I made made the questions before I'd finished, and I just couldn't get my arms around all of it. So there are a couple questions that will seem alien to, to what we just talked about during the passage. So couple, you have a couple options. You can just pa- plow right through and talk about them, or you can make your own way. Most of the questions are good. There's at least one in there that we didn't get to this morning. Hope you have a good discussion. Have a great Tuesday.